It means that everything that exists in our world comes as a reflection of the exact same sacred geometric pattern at a non-physical world above us. <clears throat> That's what you find in all the ancient traditions. When the Greeks talk about the ideal world and the world of forms, this is a non-physical blueprint level above the physical that then manifests into the energy matrix, which then manifests the physical level. So everything in this world is a direct manifestation of the exact same thing that exists above us in a consciousness space and in a qualitative energetic space. And if you understand that, it opens up many, many mysteries and many practical applications. Hello, family. Welcome on the Just Happen podcast. I'm your host, Emilio Ortiz. And are you in for a treat today? Because our guest, Dr. Robert J. Gilbert, is, in my opinion, one of the most fascinating humans on earth right now. And it is such a gift to be able to have humans that have dedicated their life to study the ancient traditions, to study the mysteries of the past so that we can see them in a new light going toward the future of a new epoch that is emerging right now on the planet. And we have covered so much ground in this first conversation with Dr. Robert. You are in for such a gift uh, to be able to absorb a lot of this wisdom. Um, I really hope that it lands for you, that it transforms you in a new way, because that's why that's why we're having these conversations to bring to bring things that have been maybe hidden in many traditions or have been, you know, indoctrinized by by other cultures. We are here to bring all of this to light. We are here to shed light into this beautiful well of wisdom and robert is such an amazing human that he he really went deep into this episode so if you're not already subscribed to this channel i invite you to join us to join this community where we're having more of these conversations that you're not going to want to miss because they are on the cutting edge of the new consciousness and it's my pleasure and my gift to be able to bring that to you. So if you love this conversation, send this to someone in your field, share this with your community and comment below your thoughts. I'm gonna be reading and I'm really interested to hear what what landed for you, what stood out, what insights came for you. Um, I'm excited to hear from you. So much love and enjoy this conversation with a luminary of our generation, Dr. Robert J. Gilbert. Dr. Robert J. Gilbert, welcome on the show. What are you most excited about right now in your life? Well, I have to say I'm very excited about what you discussed with me just before we started about the topic for today, which is how we can reclaim the masters of the net lineage from ancient Egypt as something that people can walk as a operative path in their own lives today. That's something that I'm very much engaged in in my own work at the moment, and I'm very excited about uh, sharing with people 
And of course, this also connects with the things that I'm working on at the moment in bringing Dr. Ibrahim Karim, the founder of Modern Biogeometry, from Egypt to do a seminar in the States early next year and uh, helping to get that work out because it's absolutely astonishing and really a type of modern training for the masters of the net. So all these things connect together. And again, I'm very excited to be here with you today. Some huge projects coming up for you, brother. And really, I wanted to start off with a date that you might resonate with, which is 1899. And we've heard by many different you know teachers along the ages of this dark age that humanity would enter this kali yuga and i know you mentioned that ascended masters like babaji have told that dark age has ended we are entering a new time cycle in humanity and just to give people instead of starting in the microcosm let's start in the macrocosm for you to Give us a perspective of what's going on in the world right now. This transition that humanity from 1899, what we're going through, this path of self-initiation, what's going on in the world right now? So following up on that idea about the importance of the year 1899, many people will be aware that they know my work, that a lot of my work focuses on sacred geometry. And normally we deal with sacred geometry in terms of space, but sacred geometry also refers to time. And so there's a sacred geometry of time as well as space because sacred geometry is really the study of patterns. And so there's particular patterns that control human life, whether it's an individual lifetime with what the Rosicrucians call the seven-year life cycle, where new things come up every seven years as part of our evolutionary alchemical process, and then on a macro scale, the same thing happens for the entire planet and within the cosmos with such timing mechanisms as the precession of the equinox, the, the apparent backward movement of the sun through the fixed signs of the zodiac at the vernal equinox every year. This becomes a great cosmic clock that brings new impulses in, in certain timings. And so 1899 was the time period that both Rudolf Steiner in the European Rosicrucian tradition and the Babaji lineage from the Himalayas as expressed through uh, uh, Babaji's student Sri Yuktisvar in his book, The Holy Science, describes as the end of the Kali Yuga Dark Age and the beginning of this new age of light. Now, this doesn't mean that everything's going to be fantastic immediately. These are long periods of time, and there are transitional periods, and transitional periods can be very challenging. And so, from one perspective, that's where we are right now. That 1899 was this turning point in the sacred geometry of time out of the Kali Yuga and into this new age of light, and we're in a kind of transitional period right now. So, looking at this idea, we can see reflected in external history that it was in the late 1800s that we had the real beginnings of a free international movement of a kind of new spiritual science. And this was based in the work of the Theosophists. When the Theosophy first started around the 1870s in the United States, at one time it was going to be called a Rosicrucian organization. 
but they ended up instead taking on the, the name of theosophy. And particularly the time 1879 also comes in with this. 1899 is the end of the Kali Yuga Dark Age, but intertwined with that, we have what in the Western tradition is understood as the sacred geometry of time related to the seven archangels. Every one of the archangels is a being at a particular level of evolution that is representing as a zeitgeist, as the spirit of the age in a cyclical activity, particularly particular planetary forces and an entire cycle of seven archangelic ages is 2,160 years. That's the precession of the equinox and the time it takes for the sun's apparent position at the vernal equinox to move through one whole sign of the zodiac, that whole 30 degrees. It's 2,160 years divided between seven planetary and archangelic forces. That gives a little over 300 years of rulership to each being. Now, the highest of these was understood as the archangel of the sun. The sun is the center of our solar system. It is the source of heat and light and life. And so Archangel Mikael is understood as being the highest of the seven planetary archangels. And it's understood by the European Rosicrucians that 1879 was the beginning of the new period of Archangel Mikael. So we have that happening in 1879. We have in 1899, the end of the Kali Yuga Dark Age. And almost immediately, at the beginning of the 1900s. Not only do you have the Theosophical Society creating chapters all over the world where people don't have to belong to just one spiritual tradition, but they can take knowledge from multiple traditions and take the pieces they need to craft their own independent spiritual path. And this is something that is of tremendous importance. In previous ages of recorded history, a person would join one particular tradition in most cases and stay with it their entire life. They'd have a particular guru that would lead them to whatever were the steps of that particular initiatory process. Now, the benefit of this is that you had somebody that knew what they were doing who would lead you on a process that would actually lead to something that would lead to your being able to make permanent alchemical changes in your consciousness and energy field that you could take with you through the gate of death and into subsequent incarnations. But of course, the downside is that you only got that from one perspective. And there's always the question about what is your individual mystery for every person? What's your individual mystery of who am I? Why am I here? What is the purpose of my current incarnation? And different traditions have different pieces of the puzzle. Different traditions focus on different knowledge and practices and things that will activate and sculpt your subtle body to become capable of new things, of what in the Himalayas they call siddhas or powers, mm -hmm. to activate and develop these powers. So again, the benefit of the old method of very much one tradition, one guru, that type of thing, is reflected in the Indian saying that if you dig a lot of shallow holes, you'll never find water. But if you dig one deep hole, then you'll find water, with water being the spiritual wisdom. Now, the other side of it, again, based on this is restricting you to one particular perspective and one particular method of sculpting the subtle bodies, is that as human beings have evolved to become more self-aware, more conscious, more capable of taking their own spiritual evolution in hand, moving from a kind of spiritual childhood 
where we have to be taken by the hand by our mother and father and led to wherever we're going, reflected in the guru principle, which is the exact same thing. You don't know what you're doing, so you'll take the hand of the guru and they'll take you where you need to go. As an adult, you need to be able to make your own choices. And so we've seen this tremendous movement since 1879, started Theosophical Society worldwide as a place that people could share information freely from multiple traditions. Uh, and then 1899, the end of the Kali Yuga, we see this tremendous growth in independent spiritual investigation and people learning from multiple traditions, crafting their own paths, or what the Rosicrucians refer to as the independent path of spiritual initiation. Now, when we say this, this doesn't mean that we are completely alone. We are always connected to the spiritual beings that are linked to everyone from the time that we're born, that we have particular karmic connections to, and who help us. Of course, for some of these higher beings, like the guardian angels spoken of in the Western tradition, we are of a level of development compared to their level of development that's the very analogous to a human being's level of development to having a dog as a pet. We are the dog. We are the uh -huh. pet to the, the guardian angel. It's at a level of evolution one cycle above us. But nonetheless, it's like a good pet owner. They try to take good care of us and keep us out of trouble Feed and lead us. us to where we need to go. <laughs> and so we're at the point now that although we are working with these higher spiritual beings, we're not beholden to any human being. We don't give up our freedom, particularly our freedom of choice, to any one human being. In the Rosicrucian tradition of Europe, for example, and I'm talking about the original Rosicrucian tradition, I'm not talking about modern Rosicrucian organizations, which later formed, often based on Masonic uh, principles of multiple grades that you go through an initiatory process and trying to get to this degree and that degree. That's, that's something that came later. The original Rosicrucian impulse was always independent uh, initiation, not based on joining any organization, physical organization, or having a human guru. It was about being able to connect directly to spirit, and to the spiritual beings that are connected to us. So the independent path is linked to spiritual beings of a higher status than us that are highly beneficial, and everybody has their team of beings that we can become conscious of. We have to always keep a very grounded attitude toward it so we don't fly off into fantasy about these things, and mm. it just becomes our own projections. But that's the whole core of the path, opening up the energy centers in the body, opening up the particularly the the column of energy, the column of spirit above the head, connecting to the higher centers, and then we can receive what was referred to in medieval times as the conversation of the holy guardian angel, which is the ability to activate energy centers above the head to receive the packed thought forms, the tremendously condensed energy and information that can come in an instant transmission from higher beings to us on this particular path. So just to sum this up, Yes, we are in a very important uh, period of time today as we're moving into this independent path of spiritual initiation. The, the time of the archangel Mikael, who is known as the cosmopolitan spirit by the Rosicrucians or the regent of the cosmic intelligence, because Mikael's nature is to be able to understand the wisdom in every spiritual tradition. He actually is the guardian of the original unified gnosis that broke up into all the different traditions. So someone that really connects with Archangel Mikael is able to 
partake in the knowledge from every tradition and to dynamically bring it back together and paste those fragments back together into a coherent whole. We even see in the development in the last 120 odd years since 1899 that in human history, the development of modern science has completely transformed the planet since 1899. We didn't have electrification. We didn't have planes. We didn't have cars. We didn't have anything in 1899. If you see how far we came in 100 years, it's mind-blowing. But it's because of this opening. Now, again, the technology isn't necessarily going to lead us to the promised land, but it's a reflection of the activation of consciousness for us to start moving forward. Hmm. It's so interesting that you mentioned Archangel Mikael, because just on a personal level, every time I do an interview, he's he's right here. He's right here. And here he is slaying with his sword um, a being which you might refer to as maybe Satan or Lucifer, which we're going to get into what are the differences between those two. Um, but before that, you mentioned how he is unifying all these different spiritual perspectives and wisdom. And I heard you once say that it takes 12 people to change the world. So what does the number 12 have to do with Archangel Mikael and how he's bridging together all these different perspectives and the power of this sacred number of 12? Where do you see that lying? So Archangel Mikael, again, being the regent of the cosmic intelligence, he understands the original primeval gnosis before it got broken up and divided into different groups around the world. And so that includes the understanding of the, the primal science, which is sacred geometry. It's the primal science because it is a direct emanation of the thought forms of the mind of God that create the patterns behind everything in our world. And so for higher beings, their language is sacred geometry. That's how they communicate. That's how they think. That's what they use to create the world. It's the patterns behind everything. It's the pattern language. And so within those patterns, of course, are particular geometries, particular number patterns. These are all a part of how you take higher energies and in what we call today the collapse of the wave function to the particle in modern science. We collapse the wave to the particle. We collapse the energy field into the physical manifestation. And so that gives things a specific shape that is a manifestation of its function. It gives things a specific number quality. Like there's a reason why we have five fingers on each hand and five toes mm -hmm. on each foot. The pentagram. two eyes. And, yes, exactly. <laughs> All these things we think of as sacred geometry day are usually things related to like number, like a five-pointed star, a seven-pointed star, a uh, dodecahedron with 12 faces, these kinds of things. So the highest of the platonic solids, for example, and these are the perfect divisions of a sphere that allow you to take the primal form of the sphere, which is the initial container of creation, because it comes from the singularity, the original emanation point of the divine, and then emanate out to create a container for creation. And every point on the periphery is equidistant from the center. That's the secret of the sphere. But then you have to give it shape to take on different energetics and applications. And that becomes the five platonic solids. As you may know, and as I mentioned in my Gaia TV sacred geometry series, that only four of those five platonic solids were taught publicly by the Greeks. The fifth was considered to be too holy, too sacred, and too dangerous mm. to talk about publicly, which is the dodecahedron. 
and it is we'll get the, into Oppenheimer a bit later <laughs> yeah so the dodecahedron is directly related to what you're talking about like why 12 why is 12 so important mm. so it is the 12-sided platonic solid it's the highest of all the platonic solids it relates to the whole cosmos and every one of its 12 faces is uh, a pentagon and pentagonal shapes are related to life energy five-pointed stars pentagons the five-sided geometries are directly related to life force and so the secrets of the number 12 also go back to the kabbalah and so in the great kabbalistic text one of the greatest works ever written called Sefir Yetzirah, which means the Book of Formation. This particular text talks about how the Hebrew alphabet is the manifestation of divine powers. And every one of those sounds in the Hebrew alphabet is a divine power that then becomes represented by a particular geometric shape that is the original form of the Hebrew letters. And that these 22 original letters divide into groups of 3, 7, and 12. The 12, or what they call the 12 elemental letters, they are the key to physical creation. Now, here's the thing. If you read the book Sefir Yetzirah, like I've, I've told some people about Sefir Yetzirah, how important it is. And they say, I didn't see anywhere in this book. Uh, I saw about the 3, 7, 12, but I didn't see what you're talking about with how the three is related to the three anchor points in the human oh. physical body, the head, the heart, and the will where spirit manifests our astral body of consciousness and anchors it in these three physical points, or how the seven discussed, the seven double letters in the Hebrew alphabet are related to the seven chakras in the body of the etheric life force in the body, or how the 12 is related to the 12 levels of the physical body represented in medieval diagrams showing each of the 12 zodiacal forces at a particular height or level that zodiacal force manifesting the shape information, the geometry of that part of the body, because it holds its function in a higher macrocosmic form. So the 12 is related to the zodiac. The 12 is related to why there are 12 disciples around Christ. And Christ is the 13th in the center. And the 12 is the secret to physical manifestation, to bring things into physical manifestation from a higher level is related to the number 12. So there's 12 signs of the zodiac around the earth. There's 12 disciples around Christ. And this is not an abstraction. It's not an abstract philosophy. It's actually related to dynamics. Mm -hmm. And so you can see this in sacred geometry in the work of Buckminster Fuller in what he calls the close packing of spheres. The sphere is the primal form. If you have one sphere and you see as you start to create in physical space, how many spheres of the same size can I pack around it from every direction so that it's touching the central sphere? How many can touch it packed in 3D around it? Exactly 12. Six around it, three on top, three on bottom. Is that the tree of life? Well, it's one aspect of the tree of life, but that's oh. a, another part of the conversation. Oh. Uh, so the, the idea of the 12 is it has to do with this full manifestation process. And when it then gets applied to people working in groups, just like you had 12 disciples around Christ, because it takes 12 different perspectives to understand a cosmic being, to understand a higher reality. Otherwise, we're the blind man and the elephant. 
Mm-hmm. And it's like, if you're the blind man, is the elephant a wall? Is it a spear? Is it a hose? What is it? But if you have 12 perspectives, you're walking a circle around the thing, seeing it from every perspective, and you know what the thing actually is. So it took 12 human beings around the Christ to, to have some sense of what this cosmic being was from their different perspectives, each representing a zodiacal perspective, mm. like the 12 signs around the earth. Again, often this is thought of as like something abstract, philosophical, but it's actually a direct manifestation of divine principles. It's the core organizing principles behind everything in the world. And so the Rosicrucians understood that if you're going to transform earth history, bring these beneficial aspects in, it's going to take a group of 12 very advanced initiates working together to really ground this type of divine force into the world. It's also why they say in the Rosicrucian tradition that in the initiation of Christian Rosenkreutz, a very high advanced spiritual master in the uh, Middle Ages, that he got his modern initiation through a group of 12 initiates around him. So you need a group of 12 to really anchor this type of power, but at a higher level, it becomes the 144. You need 12 groups of 12 to create the 144 harmonic, which is an incredibly powerful harmonic. And of course, as discussed in the Bible with the 144 and these types of things. But again, we're getting back here to the thoughts in the mind of God, of the actual creative powers and how they manifest in space, in time, through geometry, through number. So that's uh, beginning ideas about the number 12. I have an interesting question for you. If you were to gather a team of 12 humans living or or dead or passed on, do you have any people in mind that you would like to include to initiate um, into the next golden age of humanity? Well, in this case, I wouldn't be their initiator. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would be the one of the 12, hopefully. Hopefully I'd be of the status. <laughs> oh, you're in be, there, Robert. You're be, in there. Don't worry. You're in the status <laughs> to be one of the 12. I'd probably represent the Scorpio <laughs> perspective because that's kind of my... Ah, That's my angle. You're a Scorpio. Uh, yes, very much. Ah, very uh, much. <laughs> uh, both both Sun and Mars in uh, in Scorpio, and but this again relates to certain things in the mysteries of like Vedic astrology of the what they know in the Himalayas about how you're manifesting particular karmas in a particular lifetime based on the stellar positions of uh, the planetary positions of the time that you incarnate, mm-hmm. and so. As far as people that bring together to form the other 11, that would be something that I might have some perception of for some people, nobody to mention publicly. But in the end, it's always going to be what is the being in the center, which will most likely be a non-physical being, unless there's a very advanced spiritual master in physical incarnation at that time, who was like pulling this together, like a Christian Rosenkreutz level type of person. It would normally be a, a spiritual being that's pulling the 12 together. And hopefully I would be involved in some beneficial aspect of that. You're, you're in there, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, thank you. But yeah, that would be my, my answer for that, that question uh-huh. about the, the 12. That tends to be activated by higher beings and people just have to be, have developed their faculties enough to hear the call and come together. And the key thing today, the reason why it's so hard to do today is because one of the first challenges on the spiritual path 
is the challenge of ego inflation. And a huge number of people failed that that initiation trial yeah, right at the trial. start. And that's the they, first trial when people are initiating into a one of the very life. first trials, because once you start to like wake up a little bit and there immediately certain detrimental beings will come in. It's their their function to do so. Mm. And they'll say, oh, yes, not only are you like this incredible person, but you are even more than that. You're this fantastic guru, teacher, spiritual adept. You're the best ever. You're absolutely amazing. And they puff up your ego. And it's very common that today people without enough discernment, once they start to wake up to who they are and they start to activate their spiritual powers, mm -hmm. any healthy take on that will make you more and more humble because you'll start perceiving directly much more advanced humans and beings than we are. Uh, and also will start to see very clearly, if you're on a healthy path, the parts of yourself that need to be developed further. That will mm -hmm. become painfully obvious. If you're, but these other beings will come in and they'll shine this glamour on you and you'll get blinded by the glamour. It's like, oh, I'm absolutely incredible. Let me start my own little guru organization here and I'm the man. Uh -huh. So it's hard today to pull together groups of 12 because so many people fall prey to the ego inflation trial. That's an interesting segue because I wanted to talk about right now, especially in, in the younger generations, people are activating very psychically, as you call them, the spiritual organs, just as you also had in your 20s, this spontaneous awakening. And they start seeing these high-packed um, geometric thought patterns of the mind of God, or they might have these beings that are trying to manipulate and decipher as if they were the light, but they're, you know, essentially not that. And they go through a failed spiritual initiation. And I know you mentioned Rudolf Steiner says that a lot of these people end up in psychosis. So how do we manage someone that awakens spiritually right now? They start seeing visions. They start seeing beings. They start seeing all of these stuff and they're really open in their channel. What are you, what is your guidance um, for those people that are listening, especially younger people? I know a lot of younger people in, in sort of my circle that I've seen that are activating themselves spiritually and seeing all of these stuff and, and they don't necessarily know what's happening to them. So I'd love to get your, your guidance and your take on that. Well, this may be a good time to bring in what you referenced before about discerning between different types of spiritual influences and spiritual beings. This could be a time that will fit in here. So one of the great corruptions that came in for understanding spiritual realities, uh, which happened quite some time ago and is still very prevalent, is this idea that you can discern higher realities through a simple good and evil lens. It doesn't work that way. Uh, the idea that one polarity of whatever question is good and the other polarity is bad is absolute nonsense. So in primal polarity, when we manifest, we have male and female. So which one's good and which one's bad? That'll just be complete nonsense if you start talking about that. The, the true answer to this is always the question of the middle path, the middle way, the middle pillar, like the Tibetans talk about. So what we think of as bad or probably in better language from the East, they use the term unskillful. Like in Buddhism, they talk. They don't talk about bad action. They talk about unskillful action. Mm. It's not as judgmental, but it's unskillful. And if you had skillful action instead, everything would turn out much better. So if we 
take skillful action, if we understand how this works, there's always a middle path between the two extremes. Which is better, to be burning hot or freezing cold? Either one will kill you and is a torture. So it doesn't work that way. You have to have perfect balance. Yeah. And same thing is true when you're dealing with spiritual beings. It's not like, here's these good beings, here's these bad beings. The beings that hold opposition have completely polarized natures to them. Because it's always a question of the middle way. The middle way, the middle path, the middle pillar is where the beings that hold spirit and matter in perfect balance reside in that middle path. So in the West, of course, the Christos, and as the being that is the closest to the Christos in our understanding from the three monotheistic traditions, Archangel Michael. Hmm. Michael is referred to esoterically as the countenance of Christ. He is a being of the archangelic level, but he's actually so evolved, he's functioning at a level above that, at the next rank level above archangels, which is an archai level. But he's wow. staying at the archangel level of service. This gets more involved, but we'll leave it at that for the moment. So the idea here is that these beneficial beings, including Buddha and all of these beneficial beings in multiple traditions, this is where Christianity took a wrong turn a long time ago. It's like, oh, only the beings of Christianity are good beings, and all the beings spoken of in other traditions are demons. That's like an insane fundamentalist teaching that has caused horrible destruction and has never been true. These very high beings spoken of in other traditions are beings of the middle pillar. They're very, very advanced. Anybody who cannot see that, that the Buddha and the Christ are very closely connected in their energetic imprint and activity in the world is, is not perceiving clearly. These, these beings are holding something very similar. And so you then have the two opposite polarities. So one of the problems today with people discerning, once they start to open up their perception, yes, one of the first things they perceive are the patterns of creation, which is sacred geometry. This comes as direct downloads. And this requires a certain stability in your inner life to be able to be calm, observe, not try to grasp it, not try to shrink back from it in fear, but just to have a completely clear mind, ordinary mind, Zen state, and just perceive it. Don't believe in it or, or not believe in it. Don't have any particular attitude toward it. You're just observing it. If it's real, it'll reveal itself as real. If it's not real, it doesn't like being looked at in a non-reactive way and will tend to go away. Oh. So, I mean, that's like an amazing key, just the non-reactivity. Uh, one of my teachers at the Clairvision School in, in Australia, uh, Dr. Samuel Sagan, the late French uh, medical doctor, uh, he had a brilliant saying, which was that your ability to perceive spiritually is governed by your ability to not react to what you see. As soon as you react to it, positively or negatively, you're going to start corrupting it with your own projections. Yeah. It requires tremendous non-reactivity. And so we also need to have non-reactivity if we're going to even discuss the idea of hindering beings. Because unfortunately, a lot of things related to, to spiritual non-physical realities have been corrupted so that it become a kind of horror movie thing. So many people are actually terrified of seeing non-physical realities because there's been this terrible presentation of them that things that are non-physical are like ghosts and ghouls and all of these scary things that you don't want manifesting around you. Instead of being the breakthrough of a greater world that we're a part of, that we were am amnesiac before, not remembering who we are and that we're from this world, 
and being deaf, dumb, and blind and not perceiving this world. It's the greatest thing ever when you make that breakthrough, but it has to be in a stable, grounded way. But many people carry a subconscious fear of perceiving non-physical beings, non-physical worlds. We may desire it in a kind of adolescent thing of like eating candy, where you're like, oh, I want to see that. But then lots of times if people actually do start seeing it, then it's like, I wasn't ready to take that that mm, step. Wasn't ready. So, so the same thing here when we're dealing with talking about the non-physical beings that are constantly influencing us. It's similar to where if we were to tell somebody, you've got a billion bacteria on your body right now. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it was true before I told you that. And if you're healthy, that's absolutely fine. You'll be okay. But if you have a reaction to it, like, oh, no, I'm covered with bacteria. I better cover myself with all types of antibiotics and all, all the time to try to kill all that. Actually, that will kill you. We know that if you were to kill all the bacteria in the human body, you would die immediately. That's where we have all the stuff, understanding now of the human biome and about the gut biome and all this stuff. If you just take all these antibiotics and you kill the gut biome, you're killing yourself. So we can't be scared of all the stuff that exists around us. Yeah, it can take a pathological form, but to not understand or perceive it at all based on our fear of that would be madness. So if we have some rationality and stability to see these types of beings, that's the discussion that I had in the Gaia series that I'll recap very briefly here, which is it was understood in ancient times that spiritual beings that we encounter that have a hindering effect on our development, and they're meant to, that's their purpose for being here. We have to have something to push against. It's spiritual weightlifting. We'd never develop any strength. You'd have no muscle in your body if you didn't have gravity to push against. And so we have to have these beings to spiritually push against. Their job is to create lies. Their job is to create distortions. Their job is to confuse you because otherwise you have nothing to work through to develop an active form of mind power and discernment to see through their illusions and through their distortions. And distortions are harder than, than outright illusions because distortions have some seed of truth in them, but they've been warped. And that's true all through spiritual science today. So these two beings can take on two polar forms. Those that really embrace spirit and don't understand or care for matter hardly at all. And in the ancient world would tell people things like in ancient India that the earth is a maya, it's an illusion. Just get off the cycle of karma and reincarnation and go back to spirit. You don't need to be here. And these beings also try to get us into seeking constant ecstatic states in a way that cannot be maintained in a physical body and will end up burning out your subtle energy system and like becoming a heroin addict. It's like, yeah, it felt great to begin with, but down the road, your life just becomes total chaos. Huh. These kinds of beings were known, they present as tremendous beings of light because they've embraced spirit entirely, but they do not understand physical reality, physical, the reason for us to incarnate into the physical plane mm -hmm. to evolve spiritually. They don't get that part. They and think they're helping us. We have to incarnate in order to advance and initiate as a soul in our journey, right? As a member of the 10th spiritual hierarchy in our immediate system with nine angelic ranks above us, we are the spirits of love and freedom. And this is an essential part of our work here. When people reject physical incarnation, it's like the most painful like rejection of like your mother and father type of deal. We're like, 
You don't appreciate any sacrifice anyone has made for you because tremendous numbers of spiritual beings for tremendous amounts of time worked really hard to create this world for us to incarnate into and to get this experience. It wasn't necessarily easy for them. They sacrificed a lot to do it. And this is our chance to incarnate here and learn those lessons we can only learn in the physical body in a highly dense form. So who created this physical reality that you mentioned? That's that's a deep topic. Let me finish this idea about the two types <laughs> we'll circle of back. We'll circle spiritual back. beings here. So the one group of beings here uh, became known as, as the light bearers because being purely spirit and don't want to deal with matter, they have tremendous spiritual light. So people that believe in a false understanding of here's the good beings and, and they're all light and here's the bad beings and they're all dark will mistake Luciferic beings as Christic, Buddhic, beneficial beings. And Lucifer being that unbalanced spirituality that that you're talking about. Unbalanced in the sense that it really embraces spirit, uh, but really rejects physical incarnation and the purpose of the hard slog of physical incarnation stuff. It's easy to talk human beings into, let's reject this physical world stuff because it's heavy, it's hard, it's hard work. It's the Saturn force of like, you got to work hard to get something. So yeah, we don't necessarily want to do that, but in the end, you got to do it. So these beings became known as Lucifer, light bearer, and the leader of them is Lucifer. And then there's a massive number of Luciferic beings that chose this path. They're higher beings. They're above us. They're at least of the angelic rank or maybe even higher. And they they like, forget the matter thing. We're going this direction. And so they have this influence on us. Now, at the same time, they sometimes have some beneficial influences on us because they will often pull us toward certain types of realizations, acts of freedom, these types of things, uh, particularly pulling us out of really rigid control structures. They'll have an influence on us for that. Mm. And the sex, drugs, and rock and roll type of thing. And what are the beneficial aspects of that? You know, in like a really rigid spiritual system is like, oh, there's no beneficial aspect to any of that. Well, no, there is. And you're going to have to play with it to some extent to like get some level of freedom. Don't go off the deep end. But yeah, there's things to be explored. So the Luciferic beings are on one side. If you were to give all of your life over to them, then various destructive things would happen to your life. Uh, but again, it's very critical that people on the path can discern between those beings and a being that's Christic, Buddhic, whatever is your frame of reference for these higher beings that hold the balance between spirit and matter. And then, of course, if they're the beings of pure spirit, beings of light, there's going to be beings of darkness, beings that are related to matter, to the crystallization into physical form. And so the beings that are responsible for crystallization physical form, human beings didn't even hardly perceive these beings at first. And really old, ancient spiritual teachings, they're not even referred to. But as human beings developed further and began to develop thinking with the brain and develop their physical sense organs further and began to be able to perceive in the physical world more, they did begin to perceive these beings. And so one of the first references to them is in the old Persian Zoroastrian system, where they're referred to as Angramenu or Araman. And Araman is the dark lord of the earth. And they showed how Araman in the Zoroastrian tradition was opposed to Ahura Mazdao. Ahura Mazdao meaning the spiritual being perceived in the aura of the sun, 
which later became known as the Christos. So this is a kind of anti-Christos force. So these beings have a purpose here. The earth would not exist without these beings. These beings are of a higher rank than humanity. Uh, they are usually at the archangelic level, you know, maybe some other rank level, but usually around there. They're much more evolved than we are. They have the power to take the blueprints that come from the Godhead and higher spiritual beings to create a physical world, and they actually then construct the physical world out of it. But being the masters of physical creation and of the physical world, they developed a type of perception that even though they themselves are they themselves are non-physical spiritual beings, they love matter. That's their playpen. This is their thing. They made it. So someone goes on an ayahuasca journey and they encounter these beings. And these beings say, oh, we are the real creators of your world. We made everything here. We made you and etc etc you know we are your real gods this type of thing and then the person goes back to the shaman this is an actual story from somebody who told okay. me what happened to them uh -huh. and then they go back to their shaman and say oh i met these beings they say that they're our real creators and they made the world and blah 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 and the shaman just looks completely unaffected by it and says oh they tell everybody that <laughs> so you know we have to understand that this is how it works so these beings known as the leader being Araman, and these are Aramonic beings, that in the next cultural epoch, after the ancient Persians or Astrian, the Egyptian epoch became known as Set. Mm -hmm. So the Set force of the physical manifestation power. That's how it was understood in ancient Egypt. And they didn't try to destroy Set in the ancient Egyptian thing. They know that you can't destroy Set. This is a much higher being than we are. There's a lot of very ignorant ideas people have about, oh, we'll just destroy or get rid of these detrimental beings. Well, they have no physical earth if you did that. So it doesn't work that way. That's, that's like a knee-jerk reaction. These beings, the Luciferic beings need to exist. The Aramonic beings need to exist. You just can't let them get control over you by not understanding how spirit and matter work together beneficially. You can't have a purely polarized attitude. The detrimental thing happening today in society and politics is things are becoming completely polarized and things just tend to complete destruction when that happens. So the Aramonic beings became then known as Set. And of course, the Jews were in Egypt when they left Egypt on the Exodus. Then as they developed the Jewish Kabbalah out of the Egyptian mysteries, then Set became in Hebrew Ha-Setan, which means literally the adversary in Hebrew and became later in the Christian tradition, Satan. Mm. But one of the things that happened with losing the idea of two opposite unbalanced polarities and good is what's holding the balance in the center, one of the consequences of that is that in Europe, they lost the understanding that it had originally that Lucifer and Araman, Lucifer and Satan, are two completely different beings. And they began to treat two them like, polarities. oh, that's just like, that's just like the one adversary versus good. This completely corrupted people's understanding, which has the negative consequence that when you perceive spiritual beings, you'll think the Luciferic beings, the beings of light, are, are somehow the exact same as the Christic uh, Buddhic, but they are not. So we have to have as an absolute minimum the ability to differentiate between the Luciferic beings, unbalanced spirituality, because people can have very unbalanced spirituality in their life that makes them not able to like do their daily things and 
you know, chop wood, carry water in the physical world. And then on the other side, the Aramonic beings, which tell you that there's no such thing as spirit. You're an accident of random mixing of chemicals that just came about through some bizarre chance. And, you know, you have no spiritual nature. There is no morality. Just get yours while you can get it. You're nothing but an animal. When you die, there's nothing else there. And they have this other thing. So they create complete materialism and this type of uh, Darwinian survival of the fittest with no compassion or helping of others type of mindset. And so it has direct influences on the human soul as well as being not being able to perceive realities on a higher spiritual level. Mm. I'm, I'm really curious because if these beings, as you call them, they're in different rankings, then you would expect that the higher rank you go, the more of, of a, I guess, balanced perspective of the universe and of life you would have. So what led these beings maybe astray to one extreme and then another extreme? And why is it so important for us here on this earth to learn the middle path? Well, these are big cosmic mysteries. And to give a very superficial short take on it, uh, it's understood that the Luciferic beings at a particular point of their evolution was somewhat like uh, human adolescents that want to go into their bedroom and shut the door and have their own space to develop their own self. So Luciferic beings kind of separated themselves from the rest of evolution so they could focus on themselves. They even created these type of energetic containment vessels around them that's somewhat of the equivalent of a teenager going in and shutting the door to their room uh, so they could have this own space, but ended up separating them from cosmic evolution in a particular way. Huh. And so that's one aspect of what created the Luciferic beings. Yeah. Now, a lot of these Luciferic beings don't actually even intend harm. Hmm. Uh, they just have a completely different mindset to us. And they don't understand. They don't understand that if you did nothing but do heroin all day, that that's not going to work out well because they don't understand or support physical incarnation processes to begin with. Yeah. Then on the other side, you have the Aramonic beings. Now they were given the power to be able to create the physical world and they fell in love with that, to be able to materialize mind into matter. And unfortunately, a certain percentage of them then took this as a path of manipulative power to want to then get control over other beings that would use the manifestation process. So one of the great goals for these beings, the Aramonic beings, is they would love to incarnate physically. They would love to incarnate as physical human beings. Now, a lot of this, the esoteric understanding of this, a lot of this today has been, and this is, gets to be very confused and is a big topic in itself, has because people have lost understanding of non-physical spiritual realities, a lot of discussion today using modern science and science fiction concepts has all become things about ancient astronauts and about ETs and UFOs. All these things exist, but if you don't understand it in a spiritual context, it can be highly corruptive because it's if you have nothing but an understanding of what's actually non-physical spiritual beings and realities in a completely materialistic mindset of nothing but physical extraterrestrials, this can be a problem. But you'll see that within the ET and UFO community type of thing. Again, I'm not saying this doesn't exist. There's all type of phenomena here that actually exists, but you got to see it in a spiritual context, which is not what's being discussed these days. Mm. That 
this has come in with the idea that, oh, these certain types of greys and things are wanting to take on human bodies and to incarnate physically. And all these things they're doing is for that purpose. That's a kind of slightly torqued version of a much deeper spiritual thing that's going on here. Uh, but that's the thing with these aramonic beings. They love matter. They want to incarnate physically themselves, but they're not allowed to do so by even higher beings beyond them uh, because that would be like an adult child molester playing in the sandbox with little kids. It's like, oh, that would go bad fast. Yeah. So there's a whole thing about what used to be known as the four watchtowers and the energetic structures in sacred geometry that actually keep these types of beings from manifesting on the physical plane. And a lot of black magic stuff has always been about how do you break the four watchtowers and allow these beings to manifest at least for a short period of time on the physical plane within a magic circle or whatever, these types of things. Again, I'm just trying to connect a few dots for people for how this whole thing works. And the other part of this is that actually we should have compassion for Lucifer and Aramonic beings, although they'll completely screw you over if you give the opportunity to do so. <laughs> You're not careful. <laughs> uh, because the, the thing is they've actually made a sacrifice to be able to perform the function of that they're doing for us so that we can develop spiritual strength by resisting their influence or putting their influence into the correct perspective might be a better way to put it that holds them in balance because you can't get rid of either of them. Yeah. Uh, that's something that is a huge service to humanity. We cannot evolve without it. So these beings, in a sense, took on a certain role for a particular period of cosmic evolution, not forever, that we need to have them do that. But some of them fell in love with the role and are very invested in it at this point. Yeah. So they're part of the trial on the path. And you mentioned one of the first trials we get into is the ego inflation. These beings might be part of that trial as well. What other trials have you come across in your journey or have you seen with your students or people around you that we can have or take into account when we go on this initiation path? What trials will we face um, on the hero's journey? Thank you. It's a great question and a very, very deep question. So I, I'll just touch briefly on some aspects of it. Again, one of the first challenges you have in the spiritual path when you start to develop any understanding, any siddhas, any powers, is the ego inflation challenge that we talked about a moment ago. But then there's the, the fact that this path is a dynamic path. To stay on the middle pillar and the, the middle way is a constant dynamic activity of not falling off to one direction or the other. And so it has to, you have to have constant course correction. You might think you're the best thing ever, but if you like get too caught up in that, then no matter how evolved you were, you can get pulled off and not know you're off the middle path. Yeah. There's nothing there to show you clearly where it is. Uh, I'll give you a, uh, an anecdote I like to tell with this. Years ago, uh, in the old TV show Miami Vice, huh. uh, the two main characters are talking. And they're talking about the line that they shouldn't step over as like vice cops or whatever. And so one of them asked the other is like, uh, do you ever step over the line? How do you know you're over the line? And this is like, I think like Tubbs asking Crockett this. And mm -hmm. Crockett responds, I don't even see the line until I'm over it. 
And I thought that was a brilliant observation. We don't even see where that middle path line is until we're off to one side or the other, and we have to come back. The great Russian uh, esotericist Gurdjieff talked about the way that human beings start out on a particular trajectory. We're trying to get to what in Catholicism would be thought of as our teleological destination, that we're being pulled toward a particular uh a particular outcome, to become the being we're meant to become. Unfortunately, they lost the idea of reincarnation, and they now teach that that is not part of their dogma, so you can't really understand what that's about to begin with. But originally they had it. So we're being pulled toward what we're meant to become. But Gurdjieff talks about as we're on that path, facing the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune in daily life, we can start curling back around and not even know it. So we're going in the opposite direction we thought we were going. You turn. This happens to people <laughs> all the time. So uh, he says that what's needed is corrective shocks. So you're going toward your goal and you're starting to turn. You don't even know it. And something happens in your life that's a corrective shock. A slap Someone in you, the face. <laughs> yes. You have, a, you have an accident and no longer can you function easily in a physical body and you've got to like take stock of everything or somebody that you loved and depended on dies, mm. or some challenge of some type uh, comes up that makes you like stop everything and like, okay, where am I going? All and your go back there. material belongings are taken away from you from one exactly. moment to the next. And, yes, and some type of terrible event. And so these things are corrective shocks. So this is a prelude to your question about what are some of the other trials that we have? Well, some of the trials are to deal with these corrective shocks when they come in and not completely lose our minds over it. It's easy to fall into, why me? You know, Why do I have to deal with this? This isn't fair. I don't deserve this, all this type of thing. We don't always understand the larger context around it. And this does not in any way excuse anyone who has victimized us or treated us badly. But those things also end up becoming a type of trial that we have to like, keep our integrity, keep our mind together, not fall into close-heartedness, not fall into a desire for vengeance, these types of things, which is easy to say sitting here in a chair, you know, talking to you today. But if someone's done something horrible to you, it's, it's like it's hard to do. Yeah. But these are like some of the everyday challenges that we get. How do we deal with those corrective shocks? How do we deal with other types of, of uh, terrible events that happen in our life and, and keep some type of positivity, some type of integrity in our own structure. That's, that's a major thing. And again, as we, as we move forward on the path, it's a constant dynamic thing to try to stay on the center. So another major trial is always the relationship trial. It's because everybody has the relationship trial. Now, in ancient times, they talked about trials in terms of elements. So like there's an air trial and a fire trial and things like this. So like, like an, air trial might, <laughs> an air trial might be something like some challenge comes into your life. It's a trial and you have to figure out the solution to this problem that's occurred in your life. But you have absolutely no physical sources of support or information to figure out what's the right thing to do and to solve this problem. You have to pluck it out of the air. It's the air trial. That's just like one example. Yeah. But again, back to the relationship trial. The relationship trial is that we are spirits of love and freedom. That's our esoteric name for us in the Rosicrucian tradition. There's esoteric names for others. What's that? 
they're polar opposites too. They they are. Yeah, well, we could think of them as complementary opposites. Mm. And so, you know, there are higher beings that have other names. Like uh, certain higher beings have names like the dynamis or the spirits of motion, and the curiatites or spirits of wisdom, and the thrones, uh, or, or there's all these different beings and the different names associated with them. So we are the spirits of love and freedom. Now that means that we are constantly trying to walk a middle path between our constant desire to unify with another human being to get back to the one, because we all came from the one. Part of us knows and yearns for that state of communion with multiple beings or at least one being that would be like our romantic partner that would know us inside and out and literally when we embrace each other, we lose track of where we end and they begin. We become one great energetic form. Mm. And that's something that is very deep in every human being as a yearning to find that soulmate, that partner, to connect, to be known, these things. So that's part of it, is to get back to that love. That's the force of union. That's going back to the one. But we have to hold that in balance with the freedom to be completely independent and to make our own way and not sell our freedom and independence for being with another person. And I don't know anybody that hasn't made the mistake before of selling their freedom and independence to be able to be with somebody that maybe they shouldn't have been with, that they have to give up their freedom and independence to be partners with them. Losing ourselves, essentially. uh, Absolutely. So, but again, it's very easy to like get polarized and do like one or the other. It's like, oh, I'm going to totally give away all of my thing and just be with this one person and be what they want and need and what they demand in some cases. Uh, Or I'm just going to be, I'm not going to deal with relationships. I'm not going to deal with other people. I'm going to be completely independent. So again, it's not a matter of going to one polarity or the other. It's never an answer to a question of that. It's always how do you balance it? So we've been taught the lesson of rhythm. So our breathing is rhythm. You can't just breathe in or just breathe out. You have to breathe in and breathe out. You can't walk just on one leg. You have two legs. So you have to step with the left foot and then the right foot. So the same thing is true here in relationship. We need to have a certain amount of time and space for our freedom and independence and a certain amount of time and space for union with other people. And so this is a massive trial. That's one of the hardest things for everybody, just putting it in very practical terms. There are more esoteric spiritual trials that have to do with things about being able to navigate non-physical spaces and this type of thing. But that's like deeper down the road. Right now, you got to figure out how you're going to create a life where you get to have that union with one or more people and go back to the one. Because if you don't do that, you'll end up going insane. Mm. You'll literally start to create mental and emotional problems if you don't have that regular reconnection and alchemical merging with another person's energy field. It has very real consequences on the mind and the emotions. You have to have that. Think of children that grow up with no maternal care, with no nobody hugs them, nobody holds them. They develop terrible psychological, emotional problems. So that's true for everybody. So that's like a, I think a very practical example. How do we find that rhythm, that balance to be able to unite with others or to be able to separate? And let me give you an esoteric sidelight of this. 
One of the things that you might perceive when you're doing advanced spiritual work is you might perceive what appears to be a great being, a non-physical being. And it's like, oh, well, this is a spiritual being of tremendous stature. And then you start to perceive that other beings are then separating themselves out of that being. They're like, literally, they were a part of that one being, but now they're separating out and doing their own thing. And you realize, oh, this is a being that Samuel Sagan of the Clairvision School had the great term combinescence. These are beings that can combine their essence together, combinescence with other beings, and form a great being. And so they can then have that combinescence where all these higher angels can form together into one form. And then they can separate out at will and come back together into the one when they choose. It's a great revelation for us in a non-physical way of a deeper aspect of this process of us balancing union with another person and separation. This also gets reflected when this astral process sometimes reflects in the physical world to physical sight of what people think of as a certain type of UFO phenomena in which out of nowhere you'll get a, a ball of light appearing. The ball of light can change colors change size, do all kinds of things, and then multiple balls of light come out of it and fly around independently, and then they all come back to the initial sphere, and then it disappears. So if we really understand the pattern behind these things, everything I've just discussed is linked together. They're revelations of the same process yeah. in different areas of manifestation. So Robert, let me ask you another deep question. Is that what we are as well? Do we belong to another greater being? And right now we're just sort of splintered out in Googles of entities to then come back to the one source? That's absolutely right. So if you, one of the problems we have today is that some of the treasures held in different spiritual traditions have been lost. Things that were amazing keys for the whole planet like the understanding of Shiva and Shakti in the Himalayan tradition is of unbelievable value for the entire planet. But it's been trivialized, particularly outside of, out of the Hindu tradition. People that are non-Hindu really trivialize it. They don't get it. There's something huge there. And so the same thing is true for our understanding of the crystals. In the early Christian centuries, after the solar logos united with the body of a Jewish rabbi, Jesus, to become Jesus Christos, then, you know, it was like to understand the, the foundations of Christianity, this new type of initiation where human beings could take the sun spirit into themselves. The whole thing was like, what is the sun spirit? What is the solar logos? What is the Christos? How do we even understand this? How do we understand this new form of initiation? And so this all got lost in later Christianity. But if you go back to the original text, back to the book On First Principles by the early church father Origen, writing in the third century AD in Alexandria, Egypt. He's very clear about what the nature of the Christ being is. He says, people often talk about talking to God, but usually that's nonsense. If you're talking, you think you're talking to God, you're talking to a particular spiritual being. He says, God is so vast. God is Everything that you can perceive or even imagine with every, doesn't use words. <laughs> every, every incarnate being, every world of existence, everything. And so at your level of consciousness, if you're talking to a being that's like telling you something like in words in your head, like, hey, you better do this. 
is that the Godhead? I'm not going to say it's not, but it's like you should have some appreciation for this is something so vast, so gigantic, that we cannot directly perceive the nature of God. This was the point of origin. Uh, we can't perceive it. So that's at the Godhead level. Then it was understood that from the Godhead level, things go to the macrocosm level. Hmm. Macrocosm level is like the planets and the stars and the beings that operate at that level. And so the Christos is the solar logos. He is the being of the sun. And so as if you go back to the early text, it's not just that he's the son of God, S-O-N. He's the son of God, S-U-N. This is not some weird playing with words that I'm doing with you today. This goes back to the original text 2,000 years ago. It was fundamental. Yeah. You can find a lot of information about it by some modern books, like a book called Jesus Christ, Son of God, S-U-N, by David Fiedler, which has fantastic information about how this was understood in the beginning. Uh, this is the solar logos. So we're taking the sun into ourselves. We're actually getting a union with this being. So the understanding is that actually the Christos is a kind of group soul of humanity. It is of the exact same nature as humanity, but on one scale higher. That's what the Christos is. That's why we're so connected to the Christos. Again, all of this has been lost today with the idea that Christianity is some type of sect or cult that is, is separate from everything else. Early, early Christians would never have understood what people talk about today when they uh, demonize other people in other religions and say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm saved. But no, you, you're this, and you're like following some demon, and you're, you're not saved. That wouldn't have made any sense to early Christians because they understood the nature of the Christos was a being that we can all bring into ourselves, not I, but Christ in me, as we bring our attention up to that higher level. This is not a metaphor. It's absolutely literal. There's also the basis of the Holy Grail tradition. Holy Grail is that our energy field is a grail. It's a grail cup. It's a torus when you learn sacred geometry. Mm -hmm. And that force of the sun comes into the grail cup. That was the imagery around the ninth century in Europe. And so that's an actual process. It's not an abstraction. You bring the Christos into your own body, not I, but Christ in me, in such a way that your consciousness moves up to the level of a macrocosmic being beyond our microcosmic, I think I'm Robert Gilbert living in the United States at this time period. Those are all like very contracted identity structures, <laughs> immediate identity structures. But this is like the larger macrocosmic part of it, where all human beings are part of this unified thing. And Origen also made clear that, you know, the Christos itself is simply an emanation from the Godhead. And he said, the Christos has all the qualities of the Godhead, but reduced in scale to the point that human beings can directly perceive it. And so the macrocosmic emanation of the Godhead, Christos. Mm. Microcosmic emanation of the Godhead through Christos, individual human beings. So when we actually unify back into the one, this is completely linked to the being of the Christos. Christ consciousness. And then that leads us back to the Godhead, that we are one with all beings. So first is realizing we're one with all other human beings. These are just other shattered expressions of ourselves reflected outside of us. That's essential for any type of higher consciousness. But then at that even higher level, at the Godhead level, we're a part of everything in, in creation. And quite literally, because everything came from the Godhead as it moved from the Godhead level to the macrocosmic 
and then to the microcosmic. So that is giving you an example of what the, the real teachings are, the deeper treasures are within uh, spiritual traditions that have been lost today and terribly corrupted. That if you want to understand what's the nature of the, the group soul of humanity, the largest structure we're a part of, it was already given out 2,000 years ago in Alexandria, <laughs> Egypt. Ooh, let's go there. Let's go to Egypt, <laughs> brother. Um, okay. So just to set the stage, um, you mentioned Darwin, and there mm -hmm. was another scientist along that, um, Newton, created mm -hmm. Newtonian physics. Yeah. Everything is matter. Everything is physical. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about that there's an invisible matrix of energy. And there's Absolutely. a matrix of energy around Earth where specific temples were placed. And back in ancient times, the number one point grid, energy grid, is in the Giza Plateau. Mm -hmm. So let's travel to Egypt and really set the stage of, of that magnificent civilization that they were receiving their teachings from Atlantis. Mm -hmm. Let's go way back there. So in the Rosicrucian tradition, there's an understanding of time cycles. And the number that rules time cycles for the Rosicrucians is the number seven. So there are particular epochs. The epoch before our current one, the big epoch, was the time of the Atlantean epoch. Now, lots of times today when people hear the word Atlantis, they think of some type of modern New Age invention. But we have to be aware that this appears in text from 2,000 years ago, written by Plato. Mm -hmm. Plato was actually writing up these dialogues between a Greek named Solon, who went to Egypt and was trained by the Egyptian priest. So the discussions that Solon had with these priests, one of them was around the priest telling him, you Greeks are like little children. There is no ancient knowledge among you. Our knowledge here in Egypt comes directly from the previous civilization, which was Atlantis, which was destroyed in a water catastrophe and this type of thing. So it comes from what the Greeks learned directly from the Egyptian priest, and it comes from texts that are thousands of years old. So again, because people know so little today about historical fact, they think of some modern New Age invention. It's not. It's an ancient understanding, just like you know, the deluge myths all over the world obviously are part of an actual event that took place. Hmm. One of these global extinction types of things. So the age after the Atlantean disaster, there's all of these discussions of what's known as the secret doctrine in theosophy, which also takes a particular form in Rosicrucianism and things like this, where the first post-Atlantean epoch, uh, was led by a leader from the Sun Oracle in Atlantis. The Sun Oracle being one of the highest of the Oracle temple structures at that time. And it was led by a particular highly advanced initiate who was later known by multiple names. And the, the, what he was known at that time was Manu. So the laws of Manu is the oldest book in the world. And it's from the Indian tradition because the idea here from the secret doctrine is that this particular initiate led the exodus from Atlantis to the Indus Valley and settled what became the Vedic civilization in the Indus Valley and wrote the laws of Manu. Now that high initiate would later be known uh, under the name, the King of Righteousness, Malik Zedek or Melchizedek mm. in 
than a later time in the Middle East, and also in European times became the prototype for Parsifal in the Holy Grail legends. So this movement then to the first post-Atlantean epoch, which was the Indian, then to the Persian Zoroastrian epoch, the first time that they could perceive the Aramonic beings activity because they were becoming physicalized to that point that they could perceive that. And then the next one, the third post-Atlantean epoch is the Egyptian period, which we could also call uh, the Egyptian Chaldean Babylonian period. When we give the names of these periods, these are the people in the world that are bringing in the new impulse for all of humanity at that time. Mm. Something new is coming into that civilization. It's the A growing point. Yes, it, they're bringing in the new impulses for that time period. So the Egyptians were doing that at that time. Now, the reason we're so fascinated with Egypt today, according to the Rosicrucian perspective, is that, and this is the work of Rudolf Steiner, that after the ancient Egyptian, when the Egyptian began to decline, that was the time that the Romans were coming in. And so the Romans began to get control in Egypt and these kinds of things. They developed their world empire. So the Egyptian uh, empire was on top of the food chain for like 3,000 years, which is an insane amount of time compared to modern history. You know, the French were on top for a few years. The Spanish were on top for a few years. The British were on top for a few years. America's been on top for a few years. And being Americans, we ignorantly think that that's going to last forever, but it ain't. <laughs> So not if you understand the time cycles. <laughs> that's right. That's like this stuff comes and goes. But that's amazing. The Egyptians stayed on top for three thousand years. How did they do that? They did it because they had a very advanced spiritual science. But again, that consciousness began to shift. Then it got into the Greco-Roman period, and then into the current period, which we could call the European period. Whether you like it or not, we can easily see that in history, the Europeans became the dominant people on the earth in recent time periods. That's how they became the colonialists. The people that go out and conquer everything else, they're the dominant people at that time. So whether you like it or not, we have to say this is the European period. They've they've dominated the world. Again, it'll switch it's to something else. It's the number six, right? This is the well, sixth epoch. We're in the fifth epoch right now with the Europeans. The, the next one will be the sixth epoch. According to the Rosicrucians, that's going to be based in Eastern Europe. Eastern Europeans mm. are the next people that are bringing in a great impulse. Wow. And then there'll be more things beyond that. But one thing to point out here uh, that I've spoken about many times, but it's very important for people to understand, that to understand why we're so fascinated with Egypt today from the Rosicrucian perspective is that these time periods are reflected in a particular geometric form with the numbers. So you have the first, second, and third, and then the fourth period. The fourth period is a dividing line. And then the fifth, period is a reflection of the third. The sixth period is a reflection of the second. And the seventh period is a reflection of the first. We're currently in the fifth period, which is a reflection of the third Egyptian period. So we're fascinated with Egypt. And part of our task is to regain the knowledge of ancient Egypt, the masters of the net lineage, bring it into a modern context with our current state of consciousness and our current global civilization, but it's not going to be exactly the same as it was before, because now it's mirror imaged. We were moving toward more physicalization, more crystallization in the ancient Egyptian period. We're now moving into an etheric, an energetic 
renaissance now. We got very physicalized. We're super physicalized right now. That's why they People, were able to build these insane structures like the pyramids. Because they understood a very advanced energy science. And so that's why it was so life transformative for me in this lifetime to be able to encounter Dr. Ibrahim Karim, the founder of modern Egyptian biogeometry, because he's brought this modern science of biogeometry, which we sometimes refer to as nature's own design language of shape, sound, color, motion, angle, proportion. And he's giving out all the secrets to this of how you actually design and work with energy fields. That's absolutely mind-blowing. And so when I first discovered his work around the year 2000, uh, he was just starting to come to teach in the U.S. at that time. Before that time, he had taught a few people in Holland. And other than that, he kept a pretty low profile. And he came to the U.S. I, I worked with him. And then every time that I could connect with him, I went to his classes for years until he invited me to be the first person outside of Egypt allowed to teach his work publicly. And so that was that was huge for me. And so I've been doing that now for over 20 years. And so when we then see the significance of the Egyptian work and you think, well, how do we regain this? We have to see that a modern initiate has brought this back, Dr. Ibrahim Karim, and that this is an incredible opportunity to learn this. It wasn't until COVID in 2020 that we went from teaching this only in small classes live in a location that you had to travel to so now we're teaching it online. Anybody, anywhere can take it. And it's massively expanded the number of people learning this science. And that's why I said I was so, at the outset, I'm so excited about bringing Dr. Kareem from Egypt, who's going to be doing an event next year in the United States for people who have completed the advanced training in biogeometry by that time. Mm. And so this is, again, part of the importance of Egypt and part of the work that I'm doing is to help Dr. Kareem get his work out along with the other spiritual science work that I do around that as well. Yeah. And you mentioned these netters um, that, you know, we, we see ancient Egypt and we see that they had their gods, their goddesses. You said, no, they, they weren't known as gods or goddesses. They were known as the netters because they understood mm. this energy grid. There was one particular being, um, the ibis-headed uh, Jehudi or Thoth, that he was, in many ways, in the Emerald Tablets, he talks about he was responsible for the building. He was the builder of the pyramids. So what was the role of this particular being um, around that time? And will we see a manifestation of a being similar to that now that we are in the mirror aspect of, of ancient Egypt at this time in the epoch? That's a great question. So first, I want to give credit to Dr. Kareem for that particular insight about the netters. <clears throat> that didn't come from me. It's one thing that I, I got from Ibrahim. And so, again, whenever you read an English language text that talks about, you know, gods and goddesses, Osiris, Isis, the original text in Egyptian hieroglyphs does not say god or goddess. It wasn't words that they used. It says netter or netteru. And so this is a foundation for our modern English term, nature. So these are conscious forces of nature. In the Egyptian period, much more shamanic type of awareness, this was not a contradiction for them. For our modern consciousness, it's like, well, a force of nature, we've been trained to think about that in the West today as some abstract clockwork 
background thing that has no consciousness, has no beingness, has no meaning or purpose. It just kind of like happened. And so we study it in modern science. But at that time, they understood that behind every natural power, there is a conscious beingness, or what Ibram would refer to as a conscious energy system. And so there's a way to communicate with the netters. So they don't speak an earthly language. You know, they don't speak Russian or French or German. So I mentioned to you before about pack thought forms, that when you communicate with higher beings, they are communicating with you. You have to develop the ability to perceive it. And that comes from activating centers above the head that uh, they will transmit these packed thought forms to you. And in an instant, you get a tremendous amount of information, very tightly packed together. Mm. If you had, it was not through physical words. Now, for a spiritual being to communicate to you in words, which they could do if they felt like it, that's a much lower level of manifestation. And when people even say things like, oh, I had God tell me this in words. Well, again, I don't want to offend anybody because people have like a lot of emotional investment in this thing. I'm not in any way saying anything negative about you or God. I'm just saying God is something really vast. And if you perceive what actually is communicating with you, it's probably a being of one of what is known to the, in the West as the angelic hierarchies. And if they are expressing it to you in words, great. But that's also kind of a sign of they're saying that you're at the level of development that they have to use words with you because you won't understand them because you haven't activated the centers above the head yet. Uh, Otherwise, it would be coming in a different form. It'd be coming as yeah. a packed thought form. When they come to you, what is that experience like? It really is a matter you have to listen. It's just like you're with a person. You have to listen. You have to get quiet inside. You have to be completely non-reactive. Now, sometimes it'll come in, kind of come in on their own and tell you something you need to hear. But you can also activate it by, this is a larger topic, and what we teach about activating and structuring the human energy field, we, after working with certain structures inside the body energy field, then we work with the ones that are above the head. Particularly if you look at Nepalese Tonka paintings, you'll see very clear illustrations of energy centers above the head that have specific geometric forms. Those are the platforms that we have to use to communicate with these beings at that level. Because the level of voltage as... Samuel Sagan, the Clairvision School, would say the level of voltage or charge is so high at these centers that if you tried to bring it into the physical body, it would burn out the naughty, subtle energy channels in the body. It must be operated from above the head. In the Biogeometry Advanced Training, connecting to this, Dr. Kareem has practices related to old Egyptian knowledge for how you activate the centers above the head using particular Hekau sounds of power. Mm. or activating it through certain movements of the body. <clears throat> but again, why would you want to activate them above the head? Because all these higher activities come in when you do so. So in communication with uh, non-physical beings, this is as part of the understanding of how this works. So back to the original question about uh, Jehuti, and these, all of these beings are representations of conscious forces of nature at a higher level. <clears throat> and so to be able to communicate with these beings, I talked about the aspect of that with the pack thought forms, but within the biogeometry work from Dr. Kareem, he describes this in terms of you have to speak their language and their language is the language of 
nature's design language. Because nature's design language, shape, sound, color, motion, angle, proportion, is the netter's design language. It's exactly the same thing, but they understood in ancient Egypt <clears throat> that the netters are conscious beings that can be communicated with and not just some abstract clockwork forces around us. So if we learn, <clears throat> sorry, biogeometry, and we learn nature's design language, we can communicate to these beings and have energetic exchanges with them through the forms that we develop using shape, sound, color, motion, angle, proportion. Why do they have such specific types of forms they use in ancient Egypt? It was for that reason. <clears throat> so that's the, that's the key idea right there, that this being Jehuti is one of many different types of beings, different types of natural forces that we can exchange energy and information with in a resonance process with understanding nature's design language. That's why when we teach biogeometry, there's a foundation training where we teach you using derivatives from ancient Egyptian types of energy measurement tools to be able to detect the quality of invisible energy fields around or inside any person, place, or thing. <clears throat> and fundamental, <clears throat> sorry, fundamental methods of being able to uh, actively create patterns and forms that will interact with these forces. And we do that by starting people out in transforming the energy in their homes and offices with very straightforward work, very practical work. Mm -hmm. Then in the advanced training, we take it further. Much more advanced tools, much more advanced concepts. How do you activate the energy centers in and above the body with the Hakal sounds of power? How do we use a pattern from the Egyptian temple walls to be able to navigate through energy qualities on every plane level, seven different plane levels, and then all the subplanes of every plane. Mm. This is all practical work that we teach in the biogeometry work. It really is a modern training for the masters of the net. Huh. Let's say someone finds themselves inside the Khafre pyramid um, in the king's chamber, close to the sarcophagus. What is the role of the sounds of power? and vibration when inside a structure like the pyramid what what sort of things were they using vibration for um, in ancient egypt with these pyramids because we know they weren't just burial grounds for pharaohs mm -hmm. um, what can someone do in these modern times if they want to leverage that power of the pyramids to activate themselves on this uh, initiatory path well this has many manifestations so specifically about the sound you were talking about before. Using biogeometry methods, you could test what sounds activate the resonance in the chamber <clears throat> or activate the resonance in the sarcophagus, these types of things. I remember when I first went to Egypt many years ago, I was very fortunate to be with a small group of people who got access to the king's chamber. And we had a while in there before any other group came in. And just sitting on the edge of the sarcophagus, totally changed my energy and my awareness at the time. Uh, wow. the, the vibrations are very powerful. And a friend of mine, uh, John Stuart Reed, who uh, works in cymatics imaging, which is creating visual images of sound, yeah. fantastic field. He's developed a particular types of cymatics imaging devices where sounds can be translated into visual form. Mm. 
very advanced work. And he wrote a book many years ago called Egyptian Sonics about using the resonating principles in sense of sound resonation, although resonance itself is a much larger principle, inside the king's chamber to activate the harmonics in the room and the power in those spaces. So that type of work gives you an insight into the use of sound there. But they would do multiple things to create vibrational energetics in the space. And we have to take a look at why is there a pyramid there in the first place? So number one, why is it there? And number two, why a pyramid? Why not some other geometric form? And so one of the things that was rediscovered by French researchers in the early 1900s, we discussed some of this in the biogeometry training, and I go much deeper into this in an online class that I teach called the Universal Vibrational Spectrum. And so the French discovered that there are certain geometric forms that concentrate and direct energy in a particular way. So there is a specific type of energy that the French refer to as negative green and that later Russian and other researchers refer to as the spiritual carrier wave. And Dr. Karim uses that term spiritual carrier wave, that this is a carrier wave of energy that can penetrate through thicknesses of lead that cannot be penetrated by x-rays. And it is emanated by specific forms. If you take a sphere and cut it in half, geometrically, this is like splitting the atom. And so a hemisphere will emanate this negative green carrier wave from its base. Mm. A octahedron cut in half becomes two pyramids. And the pyramid, just like the hemisphere, emanates the negative green from its base. So the pyramid would not be at that location at Giza Plateau if it wasn't for the fact that Giza is a major world power spot. Wow. And in the ancient world, they use the pyramid form with its negative green projection power, but also because behind, why does it have negative green projection power? It is a form that is also connected to the astral plane. Different geometric shapes connect us with different planes of nature. The astral plane is the first plane of consciousness above the energetic level, the vitality, chi, ki, ether, prana. Next one above it is the astral. In the human being, it becomes the emotional body. But this, this form of the pyramid becomes a astral resonance form to connect people to the first level of spirit, the first level of consciousness, and using the negative green transmission power on top of a major world power spot as part of the grid working, working with larger energetic matrices to create interconnected energetic grids on the earth for the optimal functioning of life energy on the planet. Mm. So that's a, a few things there. So the first thing about the Egyptian sonics, look at the work of John Stuart Reed. He has a, a website on cymatics, C-Y-M-A-T-I-C-S. Uh, fascinating stuff. And then for the other things I've talked about with the energetics in the space, the negative green carrier wave, the creation of vibrational matrices, you'll find that in the biogeometry trainings. Yeah. Just, just out of curiosity, were these energetic points on Earth, were they created or were they already... I guess, there before humans. What is that like and why were they placed at those specific points? As far as we know, they are naturally existing 
And the exact same way that in a human body, the acupuncture meridians and the acupuncture points pre-exist the physical body. So there's an understanding in Chinese medicine of how the evolving uh, fetus in the womb, as it develops the physical form, that physical form is coming about through the development of the energy channels and energy points. And it then differentiates out further. So the same thing is true for the earth. As the earth is developing as a living being, a living energetic totality, there are lines of energy connecting points of energy. And one of the major largest points, one of the major chakras we could say on the earth would be Giza Plateau because we have seven big chakras in the human body. And then we have a whole variety of a lot of smaller chakras connected through meridians and things like this. So that's, that's really a key uh, point here. Now, in recent research, there's been some fantastic uh, recent material that discusses uh, one is called The Spark in the Machine, a book called The Spark in the Machine. And in it, the, the writer talks about the way that he found that these points in acupuncture become the branching points of stem cells in the human body to create the form of the human body. So all of our modern stem cell technology, because again, first I might get like a flipper type of thing that would be the foundation of my hand, but what then allows me to create every individual finger? There's an acupuncture point that becomes the differentiation programming point for the stem cell, which could become anything mm -hmm. to take on that physical form. So that recent work, like uh, the spark in the machine, shows this interface between the energetic matrix that the physical forms around and how that then programs the stem cell differentiation to become something actually physical. So the same thing is true for the earth itself. It formed like this. You have the major power spots, you have the minor power spots, and Giza Plateau is a major power spot. So probably existing from the very beginning. Now it is possible for us to create a power spot and another name that is sometimes given to biogeometry is the science of creating sacred power spots. So we learn a lot in biogeometry about amplifying already existing power spots on the earth and in the human body. But we can also create a power spot through creating concentrations of a specific energetic power that's called the BG3 in biogeometry. But it's the original unified center that manifests all through creation that has this universal harmonizing balancing force. It's a unified field force. If you know how to apply it and concentrate it, which we teach you in the biogeometry trainings, mm -hmm. then you can create your own power spot in any location. You can make your home a power spot. So there are naturally occurring power spots of vast size and intensity. And then we can create our own power spots through using the science, which is the netter's own design language. The netters created the power spot on the earth but once we learn the netter's design language, we, in a microcosmic level, can then apply it and create our own power spots. Mm. And Robert, to bring things full circle, um, we started off with the dodecahedron and mm. we talked a little bit. We mentioned Oppenheimer. Mm -hmm. um, during your time as a nuclear, biological, chemical warfare defense instructor, uh, instructor at the U.S. Marine Corps, you found um, cl declassified photos from the Manhattan Project. 
declassified de- photos. Declassified. Declassified photos. <laughs> I didn't reveal any classified information. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> I'm already putting trials yeah, on you. Don't, uh, <laughs> don't get me in trouble. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> you found um, the form of the atomic bomb and w- how it was related to the dodecahedron and that how humanity can misuse these sacred geometry forms and what would you advise for that because we're at a dangerous point where you know we can create bombs that can blow up whole spots on the planet and we obviously that would terminate the species if we start a a nuclear war right now so how do we use the sacred knowledge information for good for light purposes um Mm -hmm. instead of misusing them like we did with the atomic bomb So first, let me clarify for everybody what we're talking about here. Uh, If you haven't seen my discussion of it in the Gaia TV series, when I was, as you said, a nuclear biological chemical warfare defense specialist and teacher in the U.S. Marine Corps, uh, they had published all of these declassified, publicly available, you can find them in a book, images of what the, the first nuclear weapons looked like, the first atomic bombs, things like what they called the gadget and then Fat Boy and all these types of first atomic bombs. And they show some of this in Oppenheimer. I understand. I haven't seen the movie yet. I'd like to. I plan to see it. Yeah, it's really good. But I know I've seen clips from it where they show like the gadget. So it's like the spherical form. And if you take away the spherical form of it, you will see that the inside of the first atomic bomb is a dodecahedron because they found they had to create these 12 pentagonal mirrors to get the critical mass to happen with the atomic explosion. So again, I'm not revealing any government secrets (laughs) here. All of this stuff has been published. This is considered to be old technology at this point. Uh, I'm already calling you a whistleblower (laughs) out here, classified documents. (laughs) I'm not going to go down that road. But anyway, if you understand the historical context behind this, we mentioned before that in ancient Greece, They knew there were five platonic solids. They got that knowledge from the Egyptians. They said they got it from the Egyptians and some from the Babylonians. That's why there's Egyptian, Chaldean, Babylonian period. So they knew about the five perfect divisions of a sphere. And I guess mentioned they taught four of them publicly, but in many circles, the the fifth one was kept secret. It was considered to be too sacred and too powerful and too dangerous. The idea was that if it was the power of the fifth platonic solid, which is the fifth element, uh, because the other four are earth, air, fire, and water. So the fifth one is the fifth element, the ether, the dynamic life power behind everything. And that's the dodecahedron. It's hinted at in Plato's writings. He he can't say it outright because he's an initiate of the Pythagorean school and he can't talk about it too publicly. But he says in one of his writings, the earth when seen from above looks like a 12-sided leather ball. What he means by that is that the earth is based on a dodecahedron, which we now know is the case, but that's like another story about Mm -hmm. scientific research and such. So they, they understood that the dodecahedron was something that, because it connected to the primal life force, if that pattern was misused, it could create terrible destruction. And that's exactly what happened. So the first nuclear weapon is based on a dodecahedron. It is the manifestation of the warning from the Pythagorean school. The thing that shocked me when I found this is I've never found anyone that has ever mentioned this. I'm like, how is this possible that no one ever mentioned this? This is like so clear 
this link between the two. So I wanted to bring that out to people. So the question about, you know, how do we avoid using this knowledge for destructive purposes and use it for beneficial purposes? I don't have any one particular guideline for it. Hmm. But one thing we have to be very careful of is that we do not try to disturb or distort any natural matrices if we do not understand the forces that create and sustain them. So there's a deeper thing, I believe, behind the nuclear explosions. Is it a coincidence that all of these UFO sightings and the huge beginning of this whole UFO era happened in the American Southwest, in the areas where they were blowing up nuclear bombs, like in the period immediately after it? I don't think so. So I will discuss in various places this idea that in the ancient world, they, they talked about the four watchtowers, a type of geometric grid that surrounds the earth sustained by the archangels. You see actual drawings of it in kind of a symbolic way from the Rosicrucians like Robert Flood from 400 years ago. And so there have even been certain black magic lodges in recent times that said that their goal was to break the four watchtowers and let all this stuff in. So the thing about the atomic blasts is that they break space-time. So they create holes in space-time. They distort space-time. And they break some of the geometric protection that we have within the four watchtower structure. And so once you broke that, things could come through from non-physical levels and manifest physically in a way that they couldn't before. So the thing to bear in mind is here, uh, it's not a great idea to break apart the four watchtowers. It's not a great idea to destroy energetic matrices when you don't know what you're doing. And we should take that as a principle today because we're now at the point using the same sacred geometric knowledge, which they don't call sacred geometry in modern science. They have other words for it. But it's basically the exact same thing that was known to the Greeks and the Egyptians. We now have the field of nanotechnology where they're able to create matter atom by atom. We can create any material through nanotechnology. It doesn't have to occur naturally anymore. We can make it. it. For certain types of materials, it may take a tremendous amount of money and input to make it, but we can make it. So we need to be very careful. If we're going to start constructing matter atom by atom, we've reached that point. We'd better understand what are the natural energetic conditions that life requires before we start distorting it and breaking it apart the way we did with nuclear blast when we're working with this type of new technology. Again, for me, this all comes back to biogeometry and why it's so important. Because mm. biogeometry will teach anyone how to be able to understand and directly detect and balance energetic fields for the rest of their lives. Uh, because we give you the knowledge and the skill base to actually be able to do that. Because the energy is primary. The form is secondary. The form is always a crystallization of the energy field. So we have to get back to understanding the energetics of the human body, the energetics of all biological life, biogeometry, and apply that to new scientific and medical discoveries, which may on the surface appear to be great, but if you test it energetically, it's creating a distorted matrix, which in the end can be highly destructive. Brother, this has been such a gift. I could go on for hours <laughs> talking to you. Oh well, my thank gosh. Thank you so much. Um, 
we end every podcast with a, a segment called the final trio, which are just rapid fire questions that you can answer in any way that you want. Um, okay. Before that, I know everyone's going to want to know more about your work, where they can find you, your courses. You've scattered around all these resources for us. But where would you send people in sort of like a centralized direction um, to connect with you further? Well, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, my website is vesica.org. And Vesica is spelled V as in Victor, E-S-I-C-A dot O-R-G. And Vesica is a sacred geometry form that has the perfect overlap of two circles or spheres, creating a type of middle way uh, portal. Between Hyperspace the two portal. <laughs> it really is. So Vesica.org is the website, and that's where I have the resources for what's primarily now online classes, but we're going to start doing some live ones again here very soon, yeah. including some new material. So there's there's a track for spiritual science. And if you want to start in the spiritual science track with the type of stuff I was talking about before for how we activate human consciousness and many of the, the patterns and systems known in the ancient world for how you most effectively activate your consciousness and energy to develop to the next level, the first class in that track is called Essential Teachings and Practices of Spiritual Science. And that's a good place to start. Then we have all these classes on vibrational science, vibrational healing sciences. And so to understand the, old, the French work from the last century where they rediscovered many secrets of the Egyptian temple science, I've got a series called the Vibrational Testing and Healing Series with individual classes within it that teach many of the French rediscoveries of the Egyptian energy work. Then, of course, we under license from my friend and mentor, Dr. Kareem, we teach the biogeometry courses. And by the time this will come out, we're going to be doing some in February of 2024 mm. uh, and then keep doing them afterwards. And we have a foundation training you take first, and then there's an advanced training that anyone can take anywhere in the world as long as you have internet access. And that also has, uh, gives you more information about the biogeometry system and about other things that we'll be doing with Dr. Kareem coming up. So that, along with our various social media, you know, we have things with Facebook and Instagram and these types of things. If you'd like to join that, that's where we give out our announcements. So thank you very much for letting me mention that. Well, brother, I feel like I'm going to be a lifelong student of your work and what you're unfolding with Dr. Kareem. And hopefully we inspire thousands more uh, to join because I feel like this is transitional education for humanity in this into this new epoch we're remembering so many things so it's a beautiful process so thank you for being so committed and disciplined um and and very integral with your work um, i really appreciate that for the final trio the first question i had for you is what does uh, as above so below mean to you it means that everything that exists in our world comes as a reflection of the exact same sacred geometric pattern at a non-physical world above us. <clears throat> That's what you find in all the ancient traditions. When the Greeks talk about the ideal world and the world of forms, this is a non-physical blueprint level above the physical that then manifests into the energy matrix, which then manifests the physical level. So everything in this world is a direct manifestation of the exact same thing that exists above us in a consciousness space and in a qualitative energetic space. 
And if you understand that, it opens up many, many mysteries and many practical applications. I love that. I see behind you, you have a light that says spiritual awakening. So yes. the next question is, what is your formula for someone awakening spiritually right now? So in what I mentioned before, on the spiritual science track, I give in these online classes what I think are some of the most important foundations for spiritual awakening in a way that is healthy, that is stable, that you can integrate into your energy system, not just for this lifetime, but for the lifetimes that follow. This is all about structuring the subtle bodies. And so this I give in the essential teachings and practices of spiritual science, where I recommend people start. I give absolute foundations for the types of consciousness practices that will allow you to develop further. And particularly, I, I go into great detail about the six Rosicrucian exercises that allow you to activate the entire body of energy through creating an organizing center through the activation of the heart. Because if you don't activate this, there is no organizing center as you develop parts of yourself so that the matrix that is created is not stable. So I have many other things there too, but that's like some of the things as an example of this pathway that I found. Because it's not just in one tradition. It's not just something that I made up. It's something that you find as a fundamental in many, many core traditions. And I try to bring it out in a clearer way than it's been brought out before. And then, for example, in the second class in the spiritual science track, the one of connecting to spiritual realities, that's where I give specific instructions for like, how do you activate the energy centers above the head that allow the reception of the pack thought form from higher beings, etc. So I've put into these courses things I think haven't been clarified properly in modern circles and that anyone can learn online and start practicing. I love that. This last question, um, hopefully it's not the last. I would love to continue our conversations, Robert. Um, this question is called the time capsule question. Mm. So it requires us to travel out a bit into the future around 15, 20 years. The reason I chose those years was because I feel like that is when my generation, uh, Generation Z, are going to be stepping into leadership positions mm. all around the world. And... This is a hypothetical scenario of where we're going to get all of these leaders together in one room. And there's going to be a bunch of time capsules laying around. Um, and each guest that has been on the show has their own time capsule. And in this time capsule, you can leave anything that you want um, inside of it for the next generation of leaders, the leaders of the future. Um, it doesn't have to be something physical. It could be a sacred geometrical pattern. It could be a frequency, a vibration. It could be anything that you want. Um, but knowing that the next generation is going to open it and they're going to be equipped with the tools to um, lead into the new era and the golden age. So what would you include uh, in the time capsule? Uh, that's a great question. I love it because I've often thought of this and it's why I do the work that I do today. To be honest, the online courses that I'm doing right now are meant to be preserved, not just for people today, but for the people in the coming generations and the coming leaders, that I'm doing my best to clarify a lot of information that sometimes is very hard to find in a, in a clear form. 
So I would put in the, and that's not to toot my horn, but I mean that I've made that my purpose. Hmm. It's not that anything I do is perfect. It's like this has, I've intended to create this as something that could last and go on. So it would be the courses that I've created, as well as the collected works of Rudolf Steiner, as well as the collected work of Dr. Ibrahim Karim. Hmm. And I think that those will give a tremendous access to essential knowledge for the next round of leaders. And I, I do want to say, related to this question about your generation and the generations to come, that the current generation has been done very, very wrong by the people in modern schooling systems, that they have not had an adequate education. It's not their fault. The people that put together our educational system, particularly in the United States, have not created a good educational system and have not given them the things that they need to know to create this new world. And so, but, you know, we're dynamic living beings. And That's we why can we're see, here. <laughs> we can see that what we got in school is probably not the real deal and what we needed to learn. And people are searching for it today. Yeah. So again, these bodies of work, I think, do fill in a lot of the blanks that you're not going to be getting elsewhere, along with educating oneself as to how societal structures, economics, politics, medicine actually work to be able to protect ourselves from all the machinations going on today. Yeah. Well, brother, I wanted just to honor you for being a curator of wisdom. Um, this has been such a joy. I can't think of a better Thanksgiving uh, to end the day <laughs> with talking to you, brother. It's been you know, the biggest pleasure. I would love to continue our conversations. And I know that by you sparking the light within yourself, you're already sparking millions of lives. So I just really appreciate you uh, for joining me today, for joining us here. And it's been such, such a pleasure. So I thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. And I'd be delighted to be on again. Thanks again. Awesome. Awesome. We'll make it happen. Thank you, brother.